Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eats Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, a Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. In this episode, we're going to discuss casino gaming and efforts at keeping criminality out. Turns out it's not as easy as it sounds. Las Vegas has come to symbolize the commercialization of gambling. Until the 1940s, Las Vegas was made up of ranchers and railroad workers, and it really embodied a lot of the old American West with its embrace of rugged living, legalized gambling, and prostitution. This emphasis on individualism and a corresponding absence of stringent government regulatory oversight eventually attracted East Coast organized crime groups, most notably New York mobsters Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky. New York's organized crime syndicate used proceeds from Mexican drug trafficking to finance the construction of the Flamingo, which was really the first high-end casino and hotel in Las Vegas. The Flamingo's success, while not fast enough to save Siegel, attracted more wise guy money resulting in more high-end hotels and casinos throughout the 1950s and 60s. What followed was then big corporations and regulators moved in, and the regulations and regulators really stepped up. Casino gaming became an extension of the global hospitality and tourism business. And while the mob may not be the factor it once was, criminals are still attracted to casinos. And as a result, illicit money still finds its way into casinos' banks despite their devotion of considerable compliance and anti-money laundering resources designed to keeping it out. Financial crisis aside, casinos are the most profitable and desirable centerpieces of global hotel and casino gaming empires. So joining me today to discuss the challenges of keeping criminality out of the casinos is the former general counsel of Las Vegas Sands, Ira Raffleson. Ira is currently a senior counsel at White & Case in Washington, D.C., He's lead independent director of a public gaming company and an adjunct law professor teaching risk management in international market entry. Ira has had a lot of careers from prosecutor to law firm partner, presidential appointee in the Justice Department overseeing financial institution matters, and general counsel of two public companies. As general counsel at Las Vegas Sands, Ira's presence and governance enhancements were cited as mitigating factors in settlements with the Justice Department. SEC, and the Nevada Gaming Commission. His work included strategic oversight of related whistleblower and shareholder derivative cases, as well as unrelated efforts to expand and defend the company's industry-leading brand. These efforts included working with domestic gaming and other regulators, as well as those in Macau and Singapore. In addition, Ira assisted SANS international development efforts in Spain, Korea, and Japan. As general counsel of scientific games, Ira was responsible for governance matters and regulatory compliance in more than 50 countries with manufacturing facilities in the U.S., Canada, U.K., Austria, Chile, and China. He also assisted the company in its entry into China. I'm also joined by my co-host for this episode, FTI Senior Managing Director Rocco DeGrasse. Rocco has led fraud investigations and compliance projects across a broad spectrum of industries in both law firm and consulting contexts. He served as a law clerk to a federal judge in North Carolina, followed by 10 years as a federal prosecutor in Raleigh and then Chicago, where he served under IRA. He thereafter was a partner at two international law firms before joining a big four accounting firm as a principal in its forensic practice. In that capacity, he served as lead principal for FCPA Matters in the Americas. So welcome, Ira and Rocco, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Ditto. So 
casinos are subject to a wide range of regulatory oversight. And I would imagine it must have been at times kind of dizzying. Anti-money laundering, gaming commissions, securities regulatory in the case of publicly traded casinos. Entering new markets and construction inevitably raises FCPA concerns. With all of these regulatory compliance obligations, how do casinos prioritize these sometimes competing demands on their compliance resources while still being able to evidence that they have an effective compliance program when asked? Well, it's a great question to open with, Scott, and you are correct. There are dizzying amounts of regulations, and the modern casino is just more than a house of gambling. As you noted earlier, they're attached to hotels, entertainment venues, some are attached to convention space or arenas. And so adding to the complexity, I think, is that casinos, at least in America, have never really thought of themselves as financial institutions. And yet the regulatory regime around the handling of money, which at the end of the day is exactly what casinos do, a bank is a bank. And whether you're a teller at a casino cage or a teller at a banking institution, American regulators, and indeed increasingly all over the world, the regulators expect you to behave like a financial institution. With appropriate controls in place, casinos are not really an attractive place to launder money, absent complicity by an insider. But without complicity by an insider, almost all cases, players have to put money at risk. You get to build these beautiful houses of gaming because House wins more than 50-50, and therefore it's not an attractive place to launder. The challenge you mentioned of entering new markets is really the same for all kinds of businesses, but because casinos need more licenses, specialized licenses, gaming, liquor, hotel, the challenge becomes count your pennies like any other business. Avoid the cash, pooling of any sort, and at the heart of it, document, document, document. Ira, uh, we know that high rollers are the types of customers that every casino wants to have stay at its property and gamble at its table. And in order to entice those players to stay at their properties, casinos offer a plethora of incentives, some incredible incentives like private aircraft, helicopters, tickets to sporting events, free lodging, etc. How do casinos strike a balance between attracting these kind of coveted customers without inadvertently violating federal laws such as anti-money laundering or FCPA, especially in the context of China's recent crackdown on junkets? Well, Rocco, I think ultimately there is no balance. This is an area where compliance is business friendly because you don't get to keep the profits if the profits are derived illegally. The casino either makes the uh, resource commitment to look at source of funds and source of wealth when it needs to, or it doesn't. For those that devote the resources, I'm not going to tell you the process is easy. It's not. There is some secret sauce to it, but it avoids more problems than it creates. For those that don't, the risks are quite stark. In fairness, though, a public official is not a coveted customer. Public officials are, for the most part, underpaid. And if you're talking about someone who is the head of an oil-rich country, that'd be an exception. But that individual is as much entitled to his or her frequent player points as they would be on a private airline or at a private hotel to loyalty points. When you start talking about public officials who are earning ten dollars or $25,000 a year, uh, the notion that they're at your table gambling $100,000 at a time ought at minimum make them subject to a suspicious activity report dash casino. 
it has to be that their source of wealth doesn't line up unless they happen to have been born to wealth. And there are very few of those. One other point that you mentioned, though, with regards to the PRC, PRC has not cracked down on quad junkets. Junkets are still quite active in Macau. Where junkets have been cracked down on is the same as the individual crackdown. China has, over the last, let's say, seven years, reinvigorated its enforcement of its own $50,000 rule. So a Chinese citizen can't move more than $50,000 outside of the mainland. Now, the junkets had been doing essentially double-entry bookkeeping. And I don't mean double-entry in an illegal manner. You do your play in Macau, you pay in the mainland. That technically keeps the money in the mainland. Where the junkets hadn't been doing that and had actually been moving the money, that's where the crackdown took place. Well, thank you. And I don't know how many practitioners fully understand the distinction you've just drawn in terms of cracking down on junkets versus the transfer of money. So thank you for that, because I think it's a great point. I want to follow up on your comment regarding public officials. Would a casino treat a public official who's also a regulator any differently than other public officials, assuming the jurisdiction allows a public official to gamble on the premises in the first place? That's the tough part. Most of the jurisdictions that I'm familiar with, public officials who regulate the institution are not allowed to game at that institution. Similarly, executives from an institution are not allowed to gamble at their own institution. Those aren't just self-adopted rules by the businesses. They're also imposed by the regulators. So if you spot a regulator on the floor, generally someone fairly high up the guest services food chain is going to approach that individual and go, the eye in the sky sees all and your people see the tapes. You don't really want to be here because you're not supposed to be here. And if the institution is smart, the institution files a SARC just so that they're covered with whatever version of the Treasury Department or MOFCOM would be doing the oversight of, of the suspicious activity reports. Thank you. So in parts of the world, most notably Asia, prostitution is kind of intertwined with the hospitality industry in some instances. This coupled with the fact that human trafficking is very much a part of the sex trade. How can a hospitality company navigate the fact that prostitution is more culturally acceptable in Asia while still operating within the laws prohibiting human trafficking? Also a great question, Scott. I think in that sense, casino hotels are no different than the chain hotels. So major chain hotels exist in China. Some are U.S.-based, some are EU-based, and you actually can tell almost within minutes of walking on the floor of one of those casinos whether they have a program in place to deter prostitution on the floor or not. And frankly, some businesses, like the one I worked for, our former chairman, may he rest in peace, but he was so strict on these issues, he wouldn't even allow the adult entertainment industry to hold its annual convention at Sands Convention Space. They had to find other space in Vegas. Like U.S. counterparts, the Asian casinos have eye on the sky. It's a way of detecting criminality, whether it be pickpockets or cheating at the tables. And you can, I think, with a system of hands-on, well-trained spotters, identify prostitution and walk them off the floor. But to be clear, prostitution is actually illegal in Las Vegas. It is legal in other parts of Nevada, but in 
city proper, it's illegal. Doesn't mean it's not occurring, but it is illegal. In Macau, uh, which is the largest gaming hub anywhere, prostitution is legal. So that is different than Las Vegas, but it is illegal for a casino or a hotel to sponsor prostitution. And so if prostitution is occurring on premises, the owner of the house faces some substantial liability in Macau. Responsible companies develop protocols. There are all kinds of lawsuits going on against the hospitality industry in the U.S. for not guarding against in the industry called hot racking of rooms or not watching for telltale signs of abused trafficked people. And so I, I think you either commit to it or you don't. There are obviously some highly publicized prosecutions coming out of Macau of some of Sands's competitors, or at least one of Sands's competitors. It also takes place in Singapore at the competition. But on the floor of most casinos, most U.S.-based casinos, you will see people getting walked off floor by virtue of how the security apparatus is functioning. All right, if I can, I'd like to move to another topic that I know is near and dear to your heart, and that is the SANS resolution of an SEC FCPA investigation in April of 2016, as well as its settlement nine months later of a DOJ and FCPA investigation, which centered on the same set of facts. Scott and I recognize, though, that you were the general counsel at the time of the SEC settlement. So I will focus my comments and questions on matters of public record and leave it to you to decide what you're comfortable with addressing. I find that that resolution, the SANS resolutions, interesting for a couple different reasons. First, while the specter of bribery and bribe payments looms large over both settlements, there's never a charge of bribe or even an allegation that actual bribes were paid. And secondly, I think the resolutions provide some insight into how the Department of Justice and SEC look at the internal controls provisions as well as the books and records provision. I'm wondering if we're well, asking if you can elaborate on what you find to be the main takeaways of those two resolutions and also if there are any points that you think practitioners may miss upon looking over the cases. Sure. Thank you. To be clear, SEC and DOJ investigations were going on when I joined SANS in November of 2011, based on conduct that occurred before I got there. And the settlement negotiated with the SEC, in part through my efforts, did indeed note that the activity stopped before I got there, or at least as I got there. I left SANS in August of 2016. The settlement with the DOJ was several months later. Larry Ergenson of Mayor Brown was the outside counsel who led both of the sets of negotiations, and I was at the table for the closing of the SEC. I think there's some important things to say about the cases. The first is this case was not an improper payments case under the FCPA. It did not implicate the bribery provisions. The settlement specifically says so, both in the SEC and on the, and on the DOJ side, because I did read it. And rather, the government charged SANS because it failed to properly record and control payments to as opposed to through intermediaries, the bulk of the payments being through one representative in the PRC, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Secondly, along with another case involving a multinational pharmaceutical company in 2016, also involving conduct in China, the SEC used its enforcement powers to underscore that the accounting and controls provisions reached compliance controls lapses, as well as accounting controls lapses. And to the extent that you're looking for important lessons for practitioners, I'm not sure there is a more important lesson for practitioners. I know 
that both settlements have been criticized in the blogosphere by purists on the FCPA, that the corporation settled something that wasn't a violation of the statute. I don't agree. But whether you agree with the purists or not, the language of the controls and accounting provisions really do seem to ring about financial controls. The charges in both of these cases, the allegations in both civil settlements with the SEC, very much focus on books, records, keeping track of the money, knowing what the agent or third party is doing with the money, and the failure to have and document uh, becomes central to the allegation. One quick example, Sands hired a local lawyer. The local lawyer was chambers raided. Macau is not like Washington, D.C., where you can't walk a block without tripping over a lawyer. In Macau, you've got a very small population, and of that small population, even fewer people are lawyers. Finding a good lawyer in a resource-scarce environment, tough when there are so many large businesses competing for them. This individual was chambers raided, recommended by banks that Sands did business with. And yet the hiring of that individual was deemed to be a compliance failure, principally for two reasons. First, Sands did not document in the file that it knew he was chambers raided and had been recommended by a bank. So its files did not reflect the actual diligence that went into it. Secondly, Sands had a compliance policy that said, we won't hire lawyers and accountants without an engagement letter. Well, they hired this individual, and it took almost a year and a half for anything resembling an engagement letter, let alone the form of engagement letter that the DOJ or the SEC would think complies with, let's say, any of the fraud section guidance going back to opinion in 0402 on what should show up in an engagement letter. Third, I think the largest controls lapses involved a consultant and the use of special purpose entities. In China, there's a special purpose entity called a, a WUFI, which is a wholly foreign-owned enterprise. It's a form of corporation, but it's a very limited form of corporation in the sense of you really have to tailor its incorporation. If you're going to be in the hotel business, you have a hotel WUFI. If you're going to be in the export business, you have an export WUFI. If you're going to be in the gaming business, oh, wait, you can't do that in the PRC, but you get the point. Sands bought a basketball team and they bought a uh, real estate complex to uh, have essentially a uh, office space, both facially sensible advertising activities. Unfortunately, neither was allowed to be conducted by foreign companies. And so in both instances, they used the same individual who was referred to as a beard. And that beard was a Chinese national who could legally invest in a basketball team who could legally purchase real estate. Both transactions involved U.S. law firms working on the transactions, but neither transaction, because it was through a beard, was adequately documented to show what was the relationship between the beard and Sands, who was the real party in interest. And because they weren't adequately documented, the control over the several millions of dollars that went into those two transactions was deemed to be violative of the books and records provisions in a classic financial sense. Well, I have a couple of follow-up questions, Ira, but just to comment on 
your uh, emphasis on documentation and the distinction between financial and compliance controls. As you know, the FCPA is nearly 45 years old. If you look at the legislative history back then regarding the accounting provisions and books and records, you'll see that the emphasis is on financial aspect. I mean, compliance wasn't really on the radar screen back then. So as you note, they're written really with an emphasis on the financial aspect because it's a 45-year-old statute. So I think that's a great point. And secondly, in terms of documentation, I know you're familiar with ISO 37001, which really hasn't taken off here, but is used in Europe more often. And I hear multiple companies when I'm overseas and I've been at a conference talk about how difficult a time they've had meeting the documentation requirements of that, even if they've been under investigation, because it's such a rigorous documentation phase. Whether that sticks here or not, the fact is documentation is you know, your proof. And obviously, in the SANS case, DOJ and SEC found it wanting. My two follow-ups to you. First of all, you mentioned the importance of understanding that these payments were to the intermediary and not through the intermediary. Can you talk about the legal significance of that distinction? And secondly, I recall the SEC in its order talking about a senior level employee in the finance department and even the CFO in one instance expressing concerns about certain transactions at some point in time during the alleged wrongful acts. Looking back now, 10 years later, with the advent of whistleblower provisions and protections, do you think these one or both of these employees would be more emboldened to blow the whistle on this conduct? Or should it have risen now versus 11 to 15 years ago? Money paid through an intermediary is money where the corporation has in mind that money goes to a specific purpose. Here, there's no suggestion that the specific purpose was bribery. The specific purpose was buy a basketball team, buy a piece of real estate. Now, both of those activities were improper under Chinese law, but the money was paid to the consultant and therefore a U.S. law firm got comfortable with it. Not my law firm, not my legal department, but a U.S. law firm with an excellent reputation did get comfortable with that transaction. Maybe they wouldn't be so comfortable today after the SANS transaction, but they were at the time. With regards to the finance people, let's talk about them separately, if you will. The one finance person was a whistleblower. She reported everywhere she could, and for her excellent efforts, she got fired and treated very badly. So there's no amount of whistleblower protection that would cause her to do it more or less. She did the right thing. The whistleblower protection would have prevented her from being fired. With regards to the CFO, the SEC, and I think the DOJ, quote a rather dramatic observation by the CFO in an email to the effect that, well, this looks like a controls problem, uh, referencing the, uh, the structure of the transaction with the uh, intermediary. I think he referenced Sarbanes-Oxley explicitly. He got part of Sarbanes right. It did look like a Sarbanes problem. He just didn't describe the Sarbanes problem to the board of directors, which would have been his obligation as the CFO. He didn't describe it to the auditors either. Would that CFO have done a better job with better described whistleblower provisions? Hard to imagine that better described whistleblower provisions would take him from an accurate email to required conduct. That is, Sarbanes-Oxley required him to take those things forward, and he certainly expressed doubt about them. 
but he didn't take them forward. And by the way, a separate observation on the point, no amount of congressional re-emphasis of the importance of whistleblowers would have changed what that man did or didn't do, as the case may be. So we've now been through several other iterations of what whistleblowers should do and what companies should do to protect them. Sands' whistleblower policy, frankly, is as good as anybody else's and in many respects better than most after Larry and I were done with it. But it doesn't mean that that policy would have made one whit worth of difference in the behavior of that particular CFO. So if we needed any further evidence that Rocco and I, in the course of our careers, have spent way too much time in the company of accountants, I'm about to ask my third internal controls question of the episode. So not all organizations fully appreciate the critically important role that internal controls play in FCPA compliance. And as Rocco raised earlier, the SANS FCPA settlement with the SEC, it related to just this handful of internal controls that needed strengthening. I think we've covered this to a certain extent, but you know, at a high level, what were they and what made those specific internal controls so important given what had been alleged? I'll go with two examples, though there are many in the settlement, and I'm going to do them at the macro and the micro. So at the macro, if you're going to spend $55 million on a transaction that is illegal in the country where you are conducting it, and you're going to use a beard, and you're going to use a law firm that says it's perfectly fine, you might want to ask a local law firm and a second U.S. law firm, is this going to be according to Hoyle or not before you authorize the transaction? The fact that that doesn't occur is a controls problem because you're spending $55 million of shareholder money on an activity that isn't according to Hoyle. And the SEC called foul on it and Sands settled that allegation. At the micro, lawyer submits a false invoice for $25,000 in expenses with no backup. Company pays him the $25,000. Nothing in any internal investigation reveals anything other than he had $25,000 in expenses. During his interview with the DOJ in a third country, the individual says, I took that $25,000 and gave it to a consultant who said that uh, Sands had promised them to pay the consultant and never did. And the consultant was a friend of mine and a person of some importance in Macau. Not a public official, just a well-reputed business person. The payment of that $25,000, micro money, not even a footing error for a business that generates hundreds of millions of dollars in days. That $25,000 was a controls problem because the company paid it out simply on the word of its vendor, a lawyer, no less, but with no backup. Macro and micro, you really do have to sweat the details. And so... Every level of accounting, every level of legal review of bills, you need backup. Scott, if I can just comment on that, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when the FCPA was you know, in full swing, accountants were still catching up. It always, to me, was interesting to see how much they loathed having to deal with qualitative materiality. They thought it was wrong. But just what a difficult inquiry it was, because materiality is one of the basics of accounting and auditing. And a lack of materiality changed the nature of the audit and also the skills required for the work. So to your point, Ira, 25000 as we know, no materiality threshold with books and records and internal controls provisions. And boy, that's a nightmare for auditors. Really is. 
so gaming companies are always seeking to expand into U.S. states and Indian reservations where gambling has perhaps recently been legalized. In addition, there's always efforts going on to expand internationally into places like Japan and the Philippines, South Korea, Singapore, Malaysia. These expansion efforts, both domestic and international, can be fraught with corruption risk. The Sands sale a few months ago of its U.S.-based property and operations while retaining its property and operations in Macau and Singapore kind of illustrate how casinos really place a premium uh, on the Asian market. So how can gaming companies successfully expand their footprint overseas in jurisdictions considered to be of high corruption risk while avoiding being subject to multiple demands for bribe payments? It's really no different for casinos, banks, manufacturing companies. It's really down to the basics. And I go over this each semester with my law students. It's about lunch, Scott. I can enter a market without corruption by telling the public officials, we're going to meet in your office. I'm not buying lunch. We're not meeting for drink. And the reason we're not is my expense report is so closely scrutinized that if I put down dinner for two, they're going to want to know who's at dinner. If I lie, I'm going to lose my job. If I tell the truth, I'm going to lose my job. And so, no, we're not going to dinner. We're not going for drinks. We're not going for lunch. See in your office, and I'll tell you why we've got the best widget out there. That either works or it does. I've had great success for some great companies entering markets, including China, without buying a single meal and without paying a single bribe. So it can be done. Is it tough in certain markets? Sure. That's why American business doesn't do business in a great number of countries. I'm not sure that the redlining that takes place as a result, though, is actually good macroeconomics for the world or macro diplomacy for the U.S., but somebody ought to figure that one out. In terms of managing the risk, though, it really can be uh, managed. And in the case of the casino, you're putting five to $10 billion in a ground. The spillover. Uh, business for laundries, food services, mechanics, service personnel. You're adding multiple layers of billions of dollars to the economy. Local government officials either see the value in that or they don't. And where they do, great partnerships are made. So I, I do think it's possible. It all depends on, on how the business wants to conduct itself and how good its audit team is going to be. Look, the three of us have been involved with embezzlement corruption investigations in which the fraudster has embezzled millions from the company, government, treasury, what have you, and then blown it, spent it all gambling at the tables. Ira, what steps can a casino take or do they take to ensure that the high roller source of wealth is legitimate? There's some secret sauce in there, but let's talk about what we did. We had a very talented chief compliance officer. And as I said, Larry Ergenson helped the process throughout. I'll give you an example of where the system works. Chief of security comes to the office of the chief of compliance in Las Vegas and says, see this picture of this human being in one of our fancy restaurants? Yeah. See all these stars and starlets surrounding him? Yeah. He told our, uh, our, our marketing team, that his family is billionaires and he is managing a sovereign wealth fund. Interesting. He spent a half million dollars last night on dinner, not gambling, on dinner for him and his friends 
knocking down cases of champagne. What do you think we ought to do? We ought to ban them, was the answer. Now, why ought we ban them? We ought to ban them for three reasons. One, no kid that age is managing a sovereign wealth fund. Okay. Two, that kid's parents aren't billionaires. How do you know that? Because you can Google that kind of stuff. Marketing may not, but compliance does. Uh, he's staying in the presidential suite. Not in the morning, he's not. <laughs> Send him over to one of the competitors. Put him in a nice car on the way out. So he got driven a block, and I'm not telling you where he was sent, in one of the Rolls's, uh, Rolls Royces, that is, and was never seen in our casino again. Was never seen in our restaurants again. And good thing, too. Because lots and lots of other U.S. companies, including some very prominent bankers, uh, have regretted doing business with that human being. Where the system actually involves people who know what they're doing and apply logic and a modicum of risk-based due diligence, uh, the system works. So this individual wouldn't happen to be a, a fugitive and have a 300-foot yacht going by the name Equanimity, would he? Could very well be. Just checking. So there's a saying about casinos, and, and you alluded to it earlier, that the house always wins, uh, which is true for the most part. But there have been some notorious cases in which the house did not win. In fact, they lost a lot. When you were in your role, did you encounter any of these situations to prevent gamblers or, or maybe catching gamblers that were cheating or circumventing the controls of the gaming machines? Well, absolutely. That's not stealing big. That's stealing small. So anybody can stick their hand in the ATM machine and try and take out some money or even walk away with the ATM machine. Las Vegas is notoriously warm. And so there are very few trench coats that get worn into a casino for people to walk ATM machines out. Passing by and being a pickpocket or grabbing chips off a table, card counting, uh, like in that wonderful movie 21, all of that stuff. The casinos stay in business because they're good at monitoring the eye in the sky. If you ever get a casino client and you get a chance to go up there, you will be amazed at the efficacy of the technology. And so catching people stealing small, sending signals to one another, it is very much like the movie. It gets caught all the time. Uh, it's very much not like the movie since they don't take people out back and leave them rumpled and uh, bruised and worse. They really do work at training everyone from the croupier to the pit bosses to the security people to detect it. Where I do think the stealing is a little tougher to identify is the example I gave you earlier, where you're essentially pooling money that's going out the door anyway and not sending it in the right direction. That is, you were at the table, not Rocco. Why is Rocco getting your free dinner? Tracking that's a lot harder. It happens. And so periodically, Businesses learn how to do targeted audits. Those are a little less effective, I think, than the eye in the sky stuff. Uh, you know, Iris, since you've been gone from the sands, changes in the law obviously have you know, resulted in these uh, incredible online websites like DraftKings and FanDuel. How has the development of online gambling changed the dynamic on the casino floor on like major betting days like college basketball and the Super Bowl? Well, I haven't been back to Vegas since I left in 2016. Uh, I have walked the casino floor uh, of a small casino on my way to a restaurant in Washington Harbor, and I can't really say what's done on the floor. I, I, I can say that Sands opposed online gaming under its late majority owner, 
chair and CEO, but it's reportedly considering it now. One of Sands' competitors recently acquired one of the largest bookmakers to augment its online capacities. And another uh, of Sands' competitors is actually aligned with one of those businesses that you mentioned. I don't actually see bricks and mortar casinos giving way to online gaming as dramatically as the same way that so many retail sales activities have. Uh, But then again, I don't wager. I think as long as there are conventions, as long as there are other attractions, whether they're family oriented or otherwise, you're going to have a sports book at a casino. The convenience of online gaming is certainly going to generate income. But I don't think that money is going to come from the bricks and mortar. I think it's going to come from the old time bookies. I mean, the old organized crime guys who stood on the corner and wrote down the numbers or gave out the odds and broke legs later. That's where the money is going to go to online. So there'll be a significant drop in the demand for rice paper as a result. Yeah. Or a significant diversification in the business opportunities sought by the mob. I don't know. Well, they're pretty good at adapting and diversifying now, aren't they? They have over the years found their way. So at the outset, we were talking about how, you know, there are really a a dizzying array of regulators overseeing the operation of casino gaming, state gaming commissions being among them, or really chief among them. So how does gaming commission regulatory oversight work? You know, like financial regulators, do they they have these regularly scheduled regulatory exams and then present the findings that must be responded to? I think most people probably don't appreciate how that works. They operate in three different levels. First, if you are in a certain position, whether it be high level of a corporation, as an executive, as a director or an owner, owner of X percent, it varies from state to state. If you are uh, dealing with the public and money, almost a bonding type situation, you're going to undergo a background check. And the intrusiveness of that background check is far in excess of anything I went through in my 16 years of government to view the nation's most secretest secrets. And it's five years of financial records, and it's everywhere you ever went to school. It's every relative and what they're doing for a living or not. Borrowing money from me doesn't qualify. And you will go through a background check. And they're very serious about those background checks as well they should. And not only do you have to be clean, you can't affiliate with people that they view as a detriment to the reputation of gaming, a concept that would have been laughable at the beginning of the time period you were describing at the building of the Flamingo or even Caesar's Palace being built with Teamsters pension money. But today they take it seriously and it really has resulted in the buttoning down of the workforce. Second level is there are periodic audits, mostly noticed. So you're going to be Uh, audited from period A to period B for period a year ago, six months ago, whatever, yesterday. And they will come through uh, with a team of auditors and they'll conduct interviews. They'll do record reviews. There are certain forms of records that you have to have in place. And if those records aren't in place, you get fined. Third kind is, well, it's a surprise. Or as we used to say, Gomerd. Somebody just shows up and they're wandering around. They notice something that doesn't quite look according to Hoyle. All of a sudden, 
their inspector credential is out, they're asking questions and there is a review that takes place thereafter. There is an investigative arm of most gambling commissions or gaming commissions, and uh, that investigative arm will report to uh, the chairperson or to the entire board. They will take action or no action and then send you on to the licensing authority with a fine recommendation, a termination recommendation, the suspension recommendation, and all of that's very serious. One thing worth mentioning in that process, though, is there's no such thing as due process in the sense of there is no right to counsel, although one is generally allowed. There is no right against self-incrimination. You are going to have to turn over whatever you're going to have to turn over, have to answer questions. There is no Fourth Amendment right. That is, they can seize whatever records are on premises that they want. There is no attorney-client privilege that they are necessarily compelled to recognize, although most of them will. Now, the trade-off is many states where that due process is taken away from the human beings and the casinos that do business there, they are ultimately protected against disclosure to third parties. And so the records that are given or taken by the gaming authorities are not available to third parties on FOI requests or through a court subpoena. They're protected by legislation from such disclosure. So hopefully that's responsive. It is, actually. Ira, casinos have been subject to the federal anti-money laundering laws since 1985. And while they're certainly financial institutions, they're very different in their business model than banks and broker-dealers. We saw this year that a, a major Australian casino group got enmeshed in an AML scandal involving poor controls. What do you see as the unique challenges that casinos face in complying with anti-money laundering laws? It was morning in America. I was at Sands for three months. We became aware that there was an LA-based anti-money laundering investigation that ultimately concluded no executives did anything wrong. Very rare finding in settlements, but we did take $47 million before I got there from uh, someone who was a drug dealer. And we probably should not have taken that money if we had applied better diligence. Ironically, Sands is the one that turned the guy in on a suspicious activity report. But, you know, uh, their report wasn't deemed fulsome enough, wasn't deemed timely enough, and the settlement was made. In the aftermath of the announcement of that investigation, I was asked to attend one of the monthly sessions of the chief compliance officers. The big six casinos in Las Vegas, the compliance officers would get together at, on a rotating basis at each other's houses, if you will. Uh, not home home, but they're home away from home in the office. And uh, generally the host casinos general counsel would show up, say something pithy, and then leave. The event was at Sands two weeks after the press carried the fact that there was an investigation, not a settlement, but an investigation. And we were invited to present what we would be willing to present on the investigation. So this is early 2012. You mentioned 1985. I make that 27 years, but I'm not an accountant. And the first question I got after saying, there's not really a lot I can tell you all other than what you've read in the newspapers, but ask questions. And if I can answer it, I will. First question I got was from the general counsel of a very large casino because of the big six, some are bigger than others. And my competitor general counsel, a very nice human being, said, Ira, you know, I frankly don't understand why you don't tell the feds to go away. You're not alleged to have done anything that violates Nevada anti-money laundering law or the requirements of record keeping under Nevada law. And I said, okay, why does that matter? 
And the individual said, well, you know, there's a carve out in the federal anti-money laundering laws for state law regime. And we have a state law regime. And I said, okay, congratulations. But you were aware that in 1985, that statute was amended to say, never mind, Title III applies to everybody. (laughs) You're you're wrong. No, no, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm quite certain I'm not wrong. SARCs, CTRCs, the whole nine yards of due diligence and knowing your customer and source of wealth, source of funds, that's all what we got to be doing. They were shocked, uh, even more so than uh, Claude Rains was, that uh, gambling went out with Zablanca. And uh, now you've dated yourself. The next monthly meeting elsewhere, my chief compliance officer reported that I had ruined everyone's month because we were the only ones who knew that federal law applied. And people went scrambling for AML lawyers and upgraded their systems. The program that we had at SANS, though, even before I got there, pretty sophisticated. So if you came to play with euro in cash and you won, it happens, you get your euro back. If you play in yen, you get your yen back. You play in yuan, you get your yuan back and so on and so on and so on. You don't walk away with hard currency. Some customers get irritated by that, but that was SANS policy. It, It reduced one kind of laundering activity risk by eliminating it. I also think that when we tightened the program, we went to a system of we're not going to take certain sources of funds. So we won't take trust checks. We won't take third-party checks. If the money comes from a bank, it needs to be your bank. If the money comes from your bank, it's going back to your bank. We don't send money to tax havens. And you adopt a series of steps like that, and you can substantially limit your AML risks. Thanks, Ira. So we talked in preparation of this episode about alternative currencies like cryptocurrencies and how they are making their way into the mainstream in which major banks are beginning to provide custodial services. There are crypto exchange and some major companies have even announced that they're again accepting cryptocurrencies as a form of payment. I understand that accepting these alternative forms of payment, they haven't really gained any traction in the gaming industry. Why, Why is that? That's a yes or no, yes and no, really, to the question. They haven't gained traction yet because the casino industry doesn't know what to do with them. And that's true of much of business. So crypto may or may not ultimately succeed based on governments, plural, not hyphenated, possessive, willingness to allow alternative currencies that do come with increased anonymity and shield them from regulatory scrutiny. The PRC, for instance, one of the world's largest economies, has said no to crypto. Our economy is schizophrenic. It recognizes the uh, risk in ransomware, and yet they just seized a bunch of crypto in a highly publicized ransomware case. I don't think crypto exchanges themselves, though, have CTR and SAR requirements. And until they do, I'm not sure how fair the competition is, but we'll see. The IRS has very complex rules around things like chip blocking. You want to talk alternative currency, you can't go to a casino and play cash on the table anymore. You got to buy chips at the either at the table or at the cage. And if you buy sufficient number of chips, there's going to be a CTR process. You're going to be interviewed. They're going to have to show identification and it'll be a tax form file. Uh, you do that frequently enough, there'll be a SAR file at least if the procedures are being followed. Chips themselves are alternative currency. I don't know of a nation state that has a picture of my former boss on it, but we had plenty of chips with his picture on it. Only the the really high-end chips, though, 
were always jokes about where my picture would end up being. But um, the alternative currency of a chip is something the IRS pays very close attention to. They have rules around chip walking. So you can't take chips from Sands and walk them down the street to Valleys or Caesars or uh, the Mirage or Wynn and vice versa. Everybody's chips have to be unique and uh, you have to almost account for chip in, chip out. I think to the extent that governments will tolerate it, ultimately casinos will find a way to accommodate it. But the reporting burden on the compliance mechanism is going to be really, really tough. I remember one incident where a foreign-based casino wanted to develop voucher system. And so you could sell the voucher in a foreign country, and then the voucher could be used in the country where the casino was, either in the mall or at the casino. And then the question was, well, is it transferable? Well, if it's transferable, all of a sudden it's not traceable. And wealth sourcing uh, and source of funds become impossible to conduct. And so discussions I was involved in always focused on, well, you want to do a voucher, it's fine. And I don't care if you want to use it in the mall, uh, but if you're going to bring it to the tables, our financial institution, it's going to be traceable and non-transferable. I think crypto may well be the wave of the future and it may crash and burn. Nobody knows. But if it does become the wave of the future, casinos will figure out a way to deal with it around the same time governments do. I don't expect casinos to go out front on this. They don't need to take chances on crypto. Well, yeah, that's all pretty kind of interesting stuff here. So and this has been great. I mean, you've shared, as expected, some really great insights. You really feel like Rocco and I have gotten a real window into the inner workings of a, of a major casino gaming company. So, And I think the listeners are going to be really, uh, really going to find this very interesting. So really appreciate your time today, Ira. Well, I appreciate you having me. And uh, certainly the, the places that you guys come from make for much more sophisticated questions than lots and lots of other panels. I'm Thank you. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Nice working with you again, Ira. Thank you. Great working with both of you. That was White and Case Senior Counsel, Ira Raffleson, and FTI Senior Managing Director, Rocco DeGrasse. This concludes this episode of Fraudy Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director and FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. And thanks for listening. Uh, stay tuned for the next episode of Fraudy Strategy. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at fraudystrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening.